0: Welcome to From the Booth, a podcast where we talk about the films playing at BYU's International Cinema. This is our second podcast of fall semester 2020. I'm Mark Yamada, co-director of International Cinema, and I'm joined here today by fellow co-director Doug Weatherford and a special guest, Dewey Walter, who is the producer of the podcast. Hello, everyone. Hello. Hello. This week, we are discussing films that use long takes, or shots that last beyond the normal few seconds that shots normally last these days in films. Uh, long takes can last um, an hour, two hours, even the entire film, as we'll see with some of the films we'll be talking about today. The films we'll be discussing include Long Day's Journey Into Night from 2018 by Chinese director Bi Gan, Victoria from 2015 by Sebastian Schipper, and a film that is not streaming on IC, but will be shown in our IC290R class here at BYU, Sam Mendes' 2019 World War One thriller, 1917. Fair warning, there may be spoilers in this podcast, so consider yourself warned. Let's start with Long Day's Journey In Tonight. We're lucky to be joined by... Dewey Walter, who, in addition to being the producer of the podcast, is also a grad student in comparative studies focusing on Chinese film. So he's an ideal guest to talk about this film. Dewey, this film has a pretty basic plot structure, right? It's about a man who uh, returns to his hometown to attend his father's funeral and then seeks to kind of get in touch with people that he's kind of become distant from. What's interesting about the film is the way that it's shot. It uses 3D, it uses long takes, particularly in the second half of the film. Why don't we start with the director, B. Gun and, and find out from you a little bit about his background, his influences. Yeah, so B. Gunn, he's from
1: Kylie, which is where both of his movies are set. So Long Day's Journey and Tonight, as you said, is about the main character returning to his hometown of Kylie. Gunn's first film kylie blues is as you would expect also set in kylie so he's very much interested in the idea of his hometown part of this comes from the fact that he is ethnically Miao, or uh, what we call mong in english and kylie is kind of the center for the mong people in china right and he's made up till now three films? He's made two feature films and a, a couple of shorts, I believe.
0: Great. And um, in terms of the film itself, I mean, some of our audience members might be a little taken back by it because it's a little bit of a trippy film, right? It's you know, it's named after the Eugene O'Neill play, but it really has nothing to do with that play at all. And it could be in some ways playing with this idea of, of film within film and, and you know, the, the theatricality of it. But talk a little bit about the film is broken up into two parts. It's the first is named Memory and then Poppy, I believe, which is in some ways a reference to Paul Celan. Talk about the significance of these two parts. What's going on here in, in these two parts of the film?
1: Yeah. So as you said earlier, the first part of the film is about him returning to his hometown and reconnecting with some people, especially he is searching for a woman he once knew named Wan Chi Wen who uh, wears a green dress. Hongwu's journey takes him to a rundown movie theater. And this is going to be the last night possible to find Wan Chi-Wen. And then he falls asleep in the movie theater. And that is when we split from the first half
0: of the movie into the second half of the movie. And it's and, kind of a cool scene, sorry to interrupt you, but oh, it's kind ahead. of a cool scene where he puts on, it's a 3D film, right? That he's going to be watching. And he puts on his three d glasses, and then the audience is invited to to put on their three d glasses. And unfortunately, we can't replicate three d through Hummedia, media, but it kind of creates an interesting moment, right? Where things are overlapping here, the world of the film and the world outside of the film.
1: Yeah, uh, I saw this movie in three d in the theaters, and it was really a a really interesting moment in the theater that I've never experienced before because every other three d movie I've ever seen, you wear your three d glasses the whole time, right? Right. But in this movie, there's a moment where the character puts on the 3D glasses, and then everybody in the theater, you can hear them, like, opening the package to put on their 3D glasses, right? <laughs> and if you didn't pick up the cue in the film, then when it plays the title card that splits the movie in half, that title card is actually in 3D. So if you didn't remember to put your glasses on, it'll look fuzzy. But then we enter into what is basically the the second film in the film, which is, as you said, named Poppy. Um, and this is the hour-long single take in 3D. And one of the interesting things that, as you said, we're not getting in the 2D version is the the 3D aspect of this. Because instead of being the type of 3D where, you know, a dinosaur is, like, reaching out and is going to, like, bite you or whatever, it's not it's not... Nothing in the film comes towards you. Everything in the film goes away from the viewer. So it begins with Hong Wu in a cave. And with the 3D effect, he appears really, really far away from you, as if the screen has become a sort of tunnel into another world. It's a really interesting effect. I, I think the film is really good in 2D, but the 3D really is kind of a cherry on top.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's interesting that he's using both these at the same time. There's a 3D, but also this long take. And like you mentioned, it's not this gimmicky kind of 3D, right? Where there is these things jumping out at you. But it kind of, it really immerses you in that dream, right? And in some ways, you're kind of collapsed with him. And he's, he's sitting in the theater, and we don't know if he's dreaming or watching the film, right? And then we're kind of collapsed with him as the viewer experiencing this as well. And we really get this kind of immersive feel through that. But it really is interesting in the way that he is disrupt he's playing with time a little bit, too, right? Because you have different kind of senses of time being established and then kind of disrupted a little bit. Can you talk a little bit about his use of time and what's going on? Yeah, so the first half of the movie, I would
1: say, is more interested in disrupting our sense of time. For example, there's a shot where Hongwu in the present, is pushing his broken down van towards the camera. Uh, The camera is backing up, and then the camera slides to the left, and then it goes forward. And then we realize that as we're moving forward, we are actually in the same van in the past with young Hongwu, and it's all done in a single take, right? So it disrupts our sense of time in the narrative because we are flipping back and forth, but it's not necessarily when the camera cuts. And in the second half, in the single take, it really disrupts our sense of space because one thing that the film does is that it recycles uh, many images and themes that are present in the first half into this dream sequence of the second half. So mentions of bees, are presented as a hexagonal pattern on a fence. Apples representing sadness in the first half are now plentiful on a and being carried by a horse in the second half. Or um, red hair shows up in both things, but they're always recontextualized. Locations are also recycled in the film's second half, especially the spinning room, which really functions as the core of the narrative. But because they are done in a single take, it makes it appear much more dreamlike because in our own dreams, we don't have cuts, obviously. But right. we do travel from place to place that possibly are extremely disparate. And by constructing this fictional space that recycles all the memories of the first half of the film into a single take, it's really a kind of dream sequence that I think really expert directors like Fellini would do, but they would usually do it with cuts, right? Um, Right. And so this ability with uh, digital cameras to just record and record and record is really opening up avenues for different types of dream sequences.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's so interesting that you have, because the first part, like you mentioned, there's kind of this time image feel to it where, you know you see different things and, and it, it kind of jumps between his seeing that in the past and the present and it's kind of like the way that we experience memory and, and you know is invading the present always but but in the second half there's like you mentioned there's almost this externalization of this memory but at the same time you know the time has become real time right i mean you're kind of in this world where time flows and in kind of this linear way and yet these kind of signifiers from the past are externalized in the landscape. So it, like you said, kind of moving from a temporal to more of a spatial orientation possibly, but really interesting and really kind of a, a film that has a lot of texture, right? I mean, there's so many layers to it and so many ways in which we're kind of pulled into it and become aware of uh, that we're spectators and, and viewers at the same time that we're kind of in this film through this character. And so really great film. Any uh, tips that you would give our audience members to watch this film? How can we watch this film and kind of make sense of it? Uh, watch it twice. <laughs> the, I remember the first time I've shown
1: this film to some friends before. And every time the first time they say, wow, that was really pretty. That was really interesting. I have no idea what was happening in the narrative. Right. Uh, and I was the same way. But watching it a second time, especially just watching the first half again, it makes a lot more sense. Because once you realize that not only are you jumping in time, but that you could be jumping in time within single shots really helps to put the narrative together. And its I think it's a very interesting narrative. It's not the most complicated, which is good because the way it is presented is extremely complicated. Right, um, right.
0: But yeah, watch, watch it twice. That's what I would Watch say. it twice. That's good advice. Thanks, Dewey. And Dewey and Doug, this is not the only film that we're featuring this week to use long takes in a kind of creative way. We're also featuring other films that feature long takes, including Victoria from 2015 and then the film 1917 from 2019. Both of these films are in some ways more of a thriller genre. I mean, Long Day's Journey Into Night was kind of a drama. And so the, the long take kind of worked in maybe a different way. But with the thrillers, it really kind of pulls you in to the world of the film. Victoria in particular is a crime thriller that takes place during One Long Night in Berlin. Um, and just a little bit of background on this film, in order to secure funding for the film, Sebastian Schipper actually had to agree to shoot the film in a conventional way with jump cuts, which they shot first and which he thought was horrible. And then they had enough money to shoot three takes of the, the single take version. And apparently the first two didn't work out. The final one worked. Sebastian Schipper mentioned shooting this film was actually like a heist in the sense that you need everything to go well, Right. Uh, everyone, everyone needs to do their part well, and that's kind of what it took in order to really put this film together. Um, Doug, what are your thoughts on, when you saw this film, you saw it recently, what were your thoughts on the use of the long take and kind of the thriller heist genre here? Well, I'm quite a
2: fan of long takes, to tell you the truth, and uh, even though Victoria is certainly not one of them, I also really love slow cinema, right, the idea of stasis and you know sometimes the lack of movement. On the screen, Victoria is not that, it's not the latter, right? It's certainly a film that uh, is very much action-oriented. Action but one of the things that um, that really impressed me about watching both Victoria and 1917, even though we're not showing 1917 to our general audience, it, it's a film that's worth mentioning here, uh, is uh, just how amazing the ability to create something in one long take was, right? Uh, I watched both of those films just absolutely with my jaw uh, open, uh, right. wondering how they did this. Victoria is a film that my guess, some people have probably watched and never really noticed, however, that it was one <laughs> long take, that there were no cuts because it is such, like you say, such an action film and is dependent so much on on movement and uh, and drama and tension and all of those things that are quite naturally part of uh, of the heist movie that you're talking about but i'm really excited by some of the technological advances that allow directors and cinematographers to do something new that we haven't seen but at the same time perhaps hiding some of those innovations in a storyline that doesn't become too obvious. And I think both 1917 and Victoria did that very well.
0: Yeah, no, you mentioned the, techn- the technological and the technical aspects of really pulling this off. And the final cut of Victoria is a single take. And so it, it required this rehearsal and required numerous takes to really get right 1917 cheats a little bit, as, as we've kind of heard, that it involves uh, long takes, but there are some cuts that are kind of hidden in the film. Um, probably impossible to do as a long take with all that's going on, with all the kind of the choreographing, the war that's kind of happening in the background. To really do this as a, a true single take would be almost impossible. But um, I think what's interesting about this film, and you mentioned this idea of just the technical aspect and also kind of meaning. The historical, the artistic here, it reminds me a little bit of um, They Shall Not Grow Old, another World War One film that came out uh, a few years ago, which also used technology to kind of update um, some old footage. And I think in some ways, it speaks to the way in which we, we deal with World War One. World War II is often shown in film, but World War One is often forgotten. And in some ways, um, there's an attempt to kind of use technology to bring this experience into our kind of our collective consciousness here, but really kind of interesting use of long takes in both these films and uh, ones that we would both recommend uh, watching. Um, there's other films too, and you know, we, we, long takes have kind of come back in style a little bit in the last few years. But films have been using uh, long takes and single takes for for a long time. Doug, do you have a few films that you'd like to talk about in terms of? That use long takes?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, you know, kind of as I was saying before, I, I was really amazed at how, how the technology allowed us to see the film and really emphasize the storyline. And and I'm thrilled with these new technological innovations. But at the same time, I, I feel really drawn to some of the early pioneers uh, with the long take. And uh, one of the things that I notice in uh, three films that I'm going to mention and suggest to the viewers if they haven't seen them before is how the long take in those films all seem to have a more aesthetic, a more formalist uh, element to it. Whereas I often found myself losing track of the the form in a 1917 in Victoria. In other words, I think that despite the innovations uh, that we were seeing on the screen, that the story just, just kept drawing you back in. About, but my uh, probably three favorite long take movies are first, uh, Rope, and I'll go in chronological order. That's, of course, by Alfred Hitchcock. I, I believe it's 1948. And it's a film that has one scene in particular where a couple of individuals have uh, uh, killed uh, a friend, right, and they've hidden his body within a room. And that where they're going to host a dinner party. And so it's very Hitchcockian in the sense that, you know, somebody trying to show that they have committed the perfect crime that nobody will be able to notice them. Uh, but what's fun about this particular shot is that with all of the heavy camera and sound equipment, that uh, there is a long sequence without a cut. And uh, I really like uh, one scene in which uh, Hitchcock is going to try and show um, the rope that was used as the a murder weapon right as the one of the characters puts it in a drawer in another room and rather than having the com- camera follow the individual through that door that slides open and then back it's on the hinges so it opens and closes uh, or cutting to be able to show that, what he does is he just continues to take from that room and allows the door to swing open and then swing shut and then swing open and then swing shut. And so we see uh, you know, what's going on in the other room. And uh, to me, it's, it's very clear that Hitchcock is playing with the way we see uh, film editing. And, and that comes through. Touch of Evil is another film that I just absolutely love and that plays with a long shot. Of course, Orson Welles' uh, opening sequence is very well known. That film is from 1958. Uh, it's uh, shot uh, supposedly along the Mexican border, although it's uh, in, in uh, California town. But using cranes and uh, dollies and whatnot, uh, Orson Welles is able to take us from a scene that shows... A uh, person placing a bomb within a trunk of a car and then following that car with its unsuspecting passengers as it goes through this small town and uh, before it finally explodes with the camera going up and down and following it around. And, and for 1958, it's just simply an amazing piece of uh, cinematography and directing to get everything right and even though uh, that long take doesn't last nearly as long as uh, those of Victoria and 1917 in some ways just the early uh, aspect of it that uh, Wells did this without the same technology just really uh, amazes me and it's a film that I like to come back to and the final one I'll mention is uh, a Russian film that was shot in Cuba So it's a Russian-Cuban endeavor in 1964, and it's called I Am Cuba, Yo Soy Cuba, by Mikhail Kalatazov. And it's a film that uh, wasn't received particularly well in many parts of the Soviet Union because it uh, relied so much on the aesthetic rather than the importance of the Cuban Revolution, right? So the film takes place... Uh, right to the transition from the Batista dictatorship that's overthrown by what would become the Castro uh, Revolution. It's very positive towards the Castro Revolution, as you might imagine, with it being a Soviet film in 1964. Uh, but it shows various episodes of pre-revolution uh, Cuba and then Cuba during the revolution and, and slightly after that. In every sequence, there are four vignettes, you might say, that make up the film in each one of those you see technology at the fore and so one particular scene that i really like shows a, an american tourist is actually played by a soviet actor uh, but who has spent the night with a cuban prostitute and when he wakes up the next morning he realizes that he is in a shanty town and has to get out and has to find his way out. And as the camera follows him through the dirt roads of this uh, horrible uh, neighborhood that represents Cuba under the Batista regime before the revolution, right? The camera does not cut. And in the final moment of this long shot, the camera is somehow placed on a crane that carries it up into the air and allows the viewer to see the, neighborhood that we saw only from the street level previously. and it's really an amazing feat for 1964 and it's a film that was uh, not available in the US for quite a number of years afterwards and, until uh, recently I don't remember the exact date. Uh, but it's definitely a film that's worth watching a film uh, with a long tape. So Rope, Touch of Evil, I am Cuba are three of my favorite long takes that I'll recommend to our audience.
0: All right. Well, there you have it. Some great recommendations for films with long takes, current and past. Dewey and Doug, thanks so much for being a part of our long takes episode. And thank you for joining us today on From the Booth. Tune into our podcast each week for insightful discussion of the film streaming at IC by specialists who'll be joining us on the podcast. To get access to all of the films in our long takes series this week, visit ic.byu.edu and follow the link on the splash page to sign up with your net ID. Our podcast is produced by the International Cinema Program at BYU and is supported by the BYU College of Humanities. We are solely responsible for the opinions and ideas expressed here as they do not represent any official position adopted by the university or its supporting institutions. As always, we thank our producer, Dewey Walter, and our sound engineer, Jojo Hegstrom Pratt, as well as the staff at the BYU Humanities Resource Center for their help and support. Until next week, keep streaming.